The best long-form journalism involves a lot of red ink, and the corrections, cuts, and revisions made by reporters and their editors often go unseen by the public. Our job is to dissect their choices. We are The Markup. Chinese restaurants have dotted the downtown cores of big cities across Canada for decades, Vancouver in particular. They're ubiquitous with urban life. Turns out they're also not uncommon in remote corners of our country. Take Kwangtung Restaurant on Fogo Island, a tiny lump of rock an hour's ferry ride off the northeast coast of Newfoundland. I am Anne Huey, the national food reporter at The Globe and Mail, and I wrote a story in The Globe called Chop Suey Nation. Anne Hui stumbled across a picture of Kwangtung Restaurant on an obscure food blog. It's a one-story, white-shingled house sitting atop a hill. Huang Feng Su, the middle-aged Chinese owner, stands in front of the door, simply dressed, staring at the camera. I always kind of knew that I wanted to write about Chinese restaurants, small towns, immigration. So it, it's something that I've been kind of like toying with and playing with in my head for a really long time. So I guess in, in some ways you can say that I've been preparing for a really long time and reading about these kinds of things and stories and issues and stuff like that. Why are Chinese-Canadian restaurants, as she put it, quintessential small-town Canadian institutions? Anne's editors didn't need much convincing. So she flew to Vancouver, rented a car, and drove back east across Canada for 18 days towards Fogo Island and, hopefully, Huang Fenzu. That road trip became Chop Soy Nation. I mean, the story is written very much as sort of searching for Ms. Huang, but, I mean, really, it was all... All of the owners, it was really like every single person was its own story. So I guess if I hadn't found her, there would have been ways around it. Um, and really that element of, of, of risk, I guess, existed with every single place that I went to. Because in the vast majority of cases, you know, I had plotted out a list of towns that I wanted to go to and possible restaurants based on just research. But in a lot of cases, I would show up and the restaurant would either be closed or the owner didn't want to talk to me. And so I would just plug into Google, you know, what towns are nearby and whether or not they had Chinese restaurants. So there was a lot of like touch and go and a lot of just kind of trying stuff and seeing what would work. A lot of improvising along the way. I was really conscious of the fact that I was coming into these people's restaurants and their lives, um, and that many of them, first of all, English wasn't their first language, but most of them had probably never dealt with media, never dealt with a reporter before, um, you know. And I did my best to like explain to them what I was doing, what the story was. This is going to go in a newspaper, all of that. But I, I was also very conscious of like I wanted to make sure that these people and that their families didn't feel like I was kind of like coming into their lives. I was trying to put myself in their shoes and try to imagine this situation. I know that if somebody showed up at my parents' doorstep and wrote a story about them in a newspaper, I would have concerns. And so I just wanted to make sure that those kinds of concerns weren't warranted. I didn't grow up eating this food. Like, I, I grew up in Vancouver, and so, you know, we ate a lot of Cantonese food cooked by Cantonese chefs. And so a lot of these dishes were as foreign to me as they would be to, you know, a lot of other people. Um, so I learned a lot about this kind of 
these kinds of dishes and these kinds of foods and it was it was like really wonderful to see how some of these dishes were being interpreted in different parts of of the country and i really enjoyed tasting some of them um one of one of the people who i don't i don't think i managed to get into the main story i think i may have done a, a short bio on him he was in deer lake newfoundland and he was the one who showed me the the chop suey uh sorry the chow mein without the noodles and and i, I just remember that being it was just so delightful <laughs> like him handing me this bowl and he he had lived in vancouver before and so he knew sort of what my my conception of perception of of chop soup of chow mein should be and and so he handed it to me and he had this kind of like mischievous smile and 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 i remember tasting it and being like oh this is very different and he's like yeah you're not going to try that in vancouver so there was just, there were just a lot of like little surprises like that along the way which was, was really nice chop soy nation explores the migration of chinese workers to small town canada through their restaurants but how did this powerful story of identity, culture, and food slip through the cracks for decades? Ethnic media, newsrooms by and for a specific ethnic group, do cover cultural institutions like restaurants. Hundreds of publications across Canada serve Canadians in dozens of languages, including Mandarin and Cantonese. But most are small-scale newsrooms and cover regions with large populations of recent immigrants, which tend to be big cities. I'm fumbling through these interviews in Cantonese, which, you know, I barely spoken in the last 10 years of my life Mandarin which I really only have like a few years of like formal education in and so my my Cantonese I mean it was it was a great asset but in a lot of ways it was also a barrier because I couldn't always find you know the right words to express what it was that I was asking um in some ways it was also an asset because my Chinese is so, so terrible that some of the owners probably felt bad for me and were like trying to like help me along more than they might have otherwise if I was super fluent Meanwhile, small-town newspapers or radio stations who might have covered a Chinese-Canadian restaurant have been decimated. April Lindgren, a professor at Ryerson University, studies the decline of small-town Canadian newsrooms. When it comes to smaller communities and smaller news organizations, you can start out with, say, a newsroom that has perhaps four staff. And a 50% cut means they're left with two people to cover the whole community. I think in the smaller communities, I mean, if you have a, a town of 400, of, of 4,000 people and there's one Chinese or Canadian family, there's not necessarily going to be a Chinese language newspaper, obviously. Chopsoy Nation filled the Globe's entire folio section twice over. It ran over 6,000 words, and readers loved it. They sent droves of emails, phone calls, and letters. Part of it was just relief because I was so worried. <laughs> like, I was so worried this was a story I cared about, and you know, I knew that the Globe had put a lot of resources into um, I had spent a lot of time on so I still even though I thought that it was a good story I was still worried that other people it, it, that it might not be received um, the way that I would have wanted it to so I think I was just relieved that people kind of seemed to connect with it I, I was really really happy to see that it really seemed to transcend um, you know it people who had maybe no connection to Chinese Canadian culture or even no connection to, to these restaurants seemed to be able to connect with the story. Everyone seemed to have some kind of experience either going to these restaurants or who knew someone who had run or worked or whatever. Everyone seemed to have some kind of experience with one of these restaurants. And so I, it just, 
it was really really nice to hear people's personal stories um, I got a lot of emails from people who who described growing up in restaurants like these many were Chinese Canadians from small towns or simply grew up working in their family's restaurant the Globe got so many replies that it published a follow-up story to the response called Your Chops My Nation. One of our producers, Abby Planer, spoke with Tree Lau, a respondent to the Globe's follow-up. I, I connected to it because my father was a uh, owner of a Chinese food restaurant in a small town. And we were the only Chinese family, and it was not always rose-colored. <laughs> It was definitely hard growing up in a small town as the only Chinese girl. And um, I think it was very lonely. But somehow I got through it. So I remember when we ever we traveled, like across Canada, we would always end up finding a Chinese restaurant, a little Chinese community within one restaurant. <laughs> And that story kind of made me realize that there were more families like that. I know that would look different for a lot of Chinese families, but for those who went into a small town, opened a Chinese restaurant, that was their opportunity to, to make a living. But I know my family, they made money to bring it back home in China. They chose that life. Um, to provide a better life for their family. I have been given a really great life because of all their hard work. It did give me what I like have today, and I am so grateful. And, yeah, that story just made me recognize that. Chop Soy Nation is chock full of excellent reporting, but it's also a very personal piece. For me, probably the biggest challenge in writing the story was that... Because it was running in life, there were limits to the length. So even with all of, even sort of blowing out the section and making um, the whole section the story, they could only fit 4,000 words at a time. So it had to be a two-parter. So that was like my biggest challenge because I'd never written a two-part story before. And so I I was really struggling with, does this, you know, do these have to be, because it was, one was going to run the first week and then the next week part two was going to run like do these have to be two standalone stories and do people have to be able to read these stories as separate entities um and do they have to stand up on their own or can it be one big story cut in half which is easier to write but then you run the risk of okay well someone reads part one and then if part two is just more of the same it's like why are they going to read it so i struggled with that a lot actually um because I think the most natural way of writing the story was geographically west to east, which I, I ended up doing. But, you know, trying to do that in part one, part two meant, okay, well, if part one is going to be, you know, BC to, say, central Canada or like tip of the prairies, is there like one unifying theme that just applied to? to the western part of the country and then a second separate theme that I could do for part two that would tie together central to east coast um so yeah like I I, that was that that took me a really long time and I tried it many different ways um and and so 
that I think that structure necessitated also including certain people and and not including certain people so I don't know as readers like if it even came across but what I tried to do kind of generally even though I think it ended up getting kind of changed um, but I tried to make the first part of the story more about um, these people's histories and how these families ended up in this place and and that kind of story and then the second piece was originally supposed to be more about food the culture and the history um, of the creation of this cuisine that was kind of generally like thematically what I was working for and, and so that again like that very much kind of helped me helped to direct me whose stories would fit generally into those themes um, that all just kind of ended up getting like mixed up towards the end but it's kind of how it came together Anne mentions her upbringing in Vancouver her own family's love of food the underlying theme is really a reflection on Anne's own identity as a Chinese Canadian it's never explicitly stated and there's a reason why there there is absolutely um, a lot more that I could have done and a lot more kind of personal stuff that I could have dug into um, for the story but that I just wasn't comfortable doing at the time also it's it was only an 8,000 word it was an 8,000 word piece and at the end of the day I mean I felt like these people's stories were so much more compelling um, to tell um, and there's only so much you can fit in 8,000 words. Not that it has to be either or, but there's really only so much I think you can do in 8,000 words. That being said, um, I am actually now working on a book uh, project <laughs> based on based in, in part on Chop Suey Nation. Um, and it's actually going to include a lot more personal stuff. Um, and a, a lot more of my own personal history, my own family's history, um, and and a lot of stuff that I've actually just learned as a result of, of having done this story. So there's a lot more there. The Markup is a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism, produced bi-weekly by Erica Nagao, Abby Planer, Dylan Freeman-Grist, and others, and narrated by myself, Brennan Doherty. The music used in this episode is Something Elated by Broke for Free. Thanks for listening.